For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, awesome. Thanks, guys. That was fantastic. Hey, here we are. It's the last night together. It's been great to have everybody out. Uh, it's been just a privilege to host. Just on behalf of uh, Xenos and, and all the folks in our church, we just, uh, just want to let you know how, how much we look forward to hosting all of you every, every year and just how much we treasure the relationships that, that we get to renew or, or to begin each year. So why don't we turn to God and thank him for that, and then we'll get rolling. Lord, I do thank you for the, uh, the community that we have here, that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, that we'll be singing your praises for eternity together. And uh, you're just equipping us in so many ways here to just enjoy who you are and make you known, Lord. I pray that that would go on with power as we leave this conference and start to share our faith more effectively with people that are far from you. Amen. Okay, a couple things. Um, we, if you're feeling crowded and a little claustrophobic, head over to that lovely deck. It's a beautiful night. There's a lot of there's speakers out there. You can hear the whole teaching, and you can even see the speaker through the window. So if you want to get out of here and get some elbow room, go uh, head out to the, the deck on the north side of the building. Um, yes. And, and remember, too, especially if you're from our church, there's a room right behind me you can watch the teaching. There's another, you know, the cafe also is open in the study center auditorium. Now, next year's conference, mark your calendars. We've got this already worked out. Notice it's July 9th through the 11th. We got a guy coming named Randy Newman who wrote a book, Questioning Evangelism. He's a converted Jew and a fantastic thinker and speaker. I think you'll really enjoy him. Of course, the topics evangelism the Unexpected Adventure, and that is the book title of a book written by Lee Strobel, who will also be here. He co-wrote that book with Mark Middleberg, who for the first time in XSI history will make a repeat appearance. So come on out next year for that. Okay, now, I wanted to mention James Rochford's book, Evidence Unseen. It's a thin read packed with info, and I'm bringing that up because James is going to come on up here and introduce John Lennox. Thanks, Mike. Well, it's with great delight that I get to introduce our next plenary speaker, Dr. John Lennox, mathematician and philosopher of science, who is a fellow in mathematics and philosophy at Oxford University, where he teaches science and religion, speaks five different languages, English, Russian, French, German, Spanish, which he has used these languages to speak fluently and actually lecture in both Eastern and Western Europe, Russia, and North America. He's published 70 peer-reviewed journal articles, as well as a number of books, including God's Undertaker, Seven Days That Divide the World, God and Stephen Hawking, and the one we've been reading in our Trinity class this week, Gunning for God. He's debated Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Michael Shermer, Peter Singer. We've actually been enjoying him in our Trinity program this year. He is a world-renowned scholar, and he also has just a wicked Irish accent, so you're really going to love him. 
please join me in welcoming Dr. John Lennox. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I can see that I am not like the bishop who came to a country church at the invitation of the local minister. And as he was climbing up the pulpit steps, he saw there were only three old ladies in the audience. And as he was going up the steps, he said to the local minister, did you tell them I was coming? And the minister said, no, but word seems to have got around. <laughs> now, I have been asked to address you on the topic of the winsome apologist. And I don't think that those who invited me meant winsome, lose some. And I want to start by saying that the word apologetics is one of the most unfortunate words in the English language. Because it isn't an English word. It is a transliteration of a Greek word, apologia, which simply means defense. And because we have sadly, in my view, transliterated it, we have given many people the impression that apologetics is a subdivision of philosophy 101 and is therefore only accessible to highly educated Christians. That is an entirely false impression. Because giving a defense of your faith was something encouraged on all Christians in New Testament times. And it is very sad to me that because we have labeled it in such a way that it sounds like a philosophical subject, we have deprived many people of the joy of engaging in discussion with their fellow men and women. And I'm going to read a very famous statement to you from Scripture about this from the first letter of Peter. He says this, that always be ready to make a defense to those who ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This letter is addressed to a group of Christians. It does not discriminate between intellectual Christians and non-intellectual Christians. And there's a very good reason for that. Because giving your defense, your apologia, does not simply consist in answering complex philosophical problems. In fact, when you go to the book of Acts, you will find on several occasions, particularly chapters 22, 24, and 26, Paul explicitly gives <coughs> his apologia. Listen to him. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. And he describes then 
what happened to him. And he's on the Damascus Road and he says, but it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that is appointed for you to do. Where is the apologetics in that, ladies and gentlemen? But it's full of it. His chief apologia is his experience of God. And all of us who are Christians have experience of God. What a sad thing if we are to think that apologetics simply involves the unraveling of very sophisticated questions. First and foremost, it is a defense of your living experience of the living God. And therefore it's open to everybody because that's the one thing nobody can take from you. They can take your arguments from you. They can deconstruct them and perhaps demolish them. But first and foremost, it is Paul's experience of God and what happened to him and related events that he regards as the center of his apologia. So I would vote for dropping the word completely and going back to simply defending the Christian faith. Because, let's uh, see it clearly, you cannot open your mouth in a multicultural pluralistic society like North America without immediately being misunderstood, misrepresented, and sometimes even worse. And you've got to defend what you believe against that. Now look closely, and I want to encourage you tonight. I really want to encourage you to get engaged. Because the biggest step that you ever make is to the first engagement. And that's scary. And I'm going to talk about scary a little bit later. But listen to this again, because we're so familiar with it. Always be ready to give a defense, apologia, to anyone who asks you a reason, logos, for the hope that is in, in you. And notice the context. It's not talking about people preaching. It's talking about them asking you questions. That's the context of this. And it's interesting. When was the last time, for instance, you needn't put up your hand, that anyone asked you a reason for the hope that is within you? That's a bit of a sobering thought, isn't it? And I had a problem with this when I was a student. And I thought I was ready to answer them, but nobody ever asked me. And so I shared this with a much younger Christian, but he was further on than me. And I said, what do I do with this verse? It said I ought to be always ready to give an answer to those who ask, but nobody ever asks. And he said, have you thought of asking them? I said, no, why would you ask them? They haven't got any hope. He said, that's the point. Try asking them. And I learned a very big lesson, and I'm going to pass it on to you tonight because it's so simple. The environment envisaged by this statement is dialogue, one-on-one -on -one dialogue, first of all. 
It's a situation where people have been stimulated to ask you a question about a specific thing, not about Wittgenstein's first period. No. About the hope that is within you. Now, Peter, in this, in this letter, has started off by telling what is the anchor of the Christian faith, what its central message is. You have been, he says, begotten again, born again, unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is the hope above all that we are meant to give answers about. So we must have been talking about them in the first place, mustn't we? If people are asking questions here about the hope of the resurrection, we must have been somehow talking about it. It's not that we have to be able to answer every question. You'd never get started if that was the case. And you see, here's the problem. People come to conferences like this, and they hear a select group of people who have been doing this kind of thing for years and years, and have written N books about it. And they say, but I'm just an ordinary punter. I can't write books. I can't debate. Uh, well, the thing's hopeless. Have I got to read a hundred books on apologetics before I can start? No, you don't. So I want to encourage you to get engaged on how to start. And the way to start is by asking questions, not by giving answers. Now, this is enormously important. Uh, after I learned that little lesson, um, I uh, thought about it a bit, and I was traveling by train to London from uh, Cambridge, it was in those days, you see. And I found myself sitting beside a man who was reading a scientific journal. And like most English people, buried in it, you know, and concentrating on it. So I quietly said, I see you're a scientist. And he said, yes, I'm a material scientist. And um, he said, well, what, what are you? Well, I said, I'm a mathematician. And he went back to the reading. So I brought out a New Testament. And I started reading the New Testament and held it so that he could see it, of course. <laughs> and um, after a while, he said, excuse me, is that the New Testament you're reading? I said, that's right. And I went on reading. <laughs> so after a few more minutes, I could see he was getting nervy and, and so on. He said, excuse me, I don't really mean to interrupt you, but... You're reading the New Testament. I said, that's right. I went on reading. <laughs> and somehow the pressure got too much. Uh, and he said, but look, I, I don't understand this. I, I, uh, I mean, you're a scientist and you're reading the New Testament. So I remembered my conversation with my friend and I turned around to this man. And I said, tell me, have you got any hope? And there was utter silence and he went white in the face. And then he said, I guess we'll all muddle through. I said, what? You mean the human race? He said, yes, but I said, have you any personal hope? He said, none whatsoever. So I started talking to him, of course. He now asked me, had I any hope? And so I could begin to talk to him. And of course, my wife makes sure that I always carry a Gideon New Testament with me. You believe the Bible is the word of God, do you? When was the last time you give any part of it to anybody? Oh, you don't believe it then. We've got to be real about these things, ladies and gentlemen. So in the end, because we're getting into London, I said, you know, I'd like you to read this. He said, the trouble is I read a couple of Psalms at school. I've never read the New Testament. So when he'd finished, a vision appeared, a woman with hair way up like this. And she said from behind me, I believe in Mother Earth. And she really looked like it. And um, <laughs> she said, I've been listening to you. 
And she said, could I have one of those little books too? So I gave her one because my wife had given me two. Engage. Look for ways of engaging with people. And you find it's amazing. Be inventive. Sitting in an airport, I see a medic frantically prescribing on his mobile phone. And when he stops, I said, you know, you never get away from the job, do you? He said, no. I, I said, I'm in a university and teach. Oh, he said, my son's in university. He's thinking of dropping out. What do you do? Within 30 seconds, he says this. And I said, well, I said, you're getting your plane. I'm getting my plane in a moment or two. So I said, let's cut it short. I said, really? I've discovered that for a young person like this that's losing their way, the only real answer is to be found. In Jesus Christ. And I said, look, I'd like to give a present to your son. So I pulled out another Gideon Testament, you see. And I gave it to him. And he looked at me and he said, thank you so much. But may I read it too? Look for opportunities. And you see, you don't have to know much to ask people questions. Here's a little experiment you can do. Some of us are so full of knowledge that when we meet anybody, we scare them to death by changing our voice and getting very grave and solemn. And they get frightened to death. We can talk about football, we can talk about politics in a perfectly normal voice, and we start to talk about the gospel and we become absolutely grim. <laughs> You're laughing, but you know it's true, don't you? Some people have a special voice for church. And it frightens people to death. Learn to speak naturally about what you believe. That takes work. It takes practice. You need to be able to drop it into a conversation. You see, the trouble is, many of us are monomaniacs when it comes to the Christian faith. That's all we can talk about. And people find us profoundly boring. I was told when I was younger something that helped me greatly. If you want people to be interested in your message, you be interested in them. And be interested in as much as you can. You play golf, well, play golf, play tennis, get involved with people. And ask questions. You see, we tend to turn it the other way around. We need so much knowledge to start. But listen, all of us can ask questions. So I have a little rule that I break frequently because it's very hard to keep and you'll see why in a moment. When I meet somebody new, I will keep asking them questions until they ask me one. Boy, that's a severe discipline for some of you. We're desperate to unload on them something that we think is important. Just keep asking them questions. What sort of questions? About deep philosophy? No, about their family and about their work. And you will find the dynamic of the relationship is totally different. You see, God is interested in people. I'm interested in people. I believe Christianity is true, but it won't make any sense to anybody if it comes freighted on something that sounds abnormal. And we've got to study to learn to be natural. Now, asking questions is a famous thing. Socrates did it and was forced to commit suicide because he did it. You know that, don't you? Socrates, the famous Athenian brilliant thinker, one of my intellectual heroes, went round the place asking questions and was accused publicly of corrupting the youth of Athens and was forced to drink hemlock and therefore commit suicide. What he was actually doing was putting questions into the heads of young people that their parents couldn't answer. And that got him into serious trouble. 
And it will get us into a bit of trouble. But it can be so important. And it's exactly the environment that Peter is envisaging. Be ready to give an answer. A defense to anybody that asks you. So the dynamic of a personal relationship is presupposed. We often take this way out of its context. And therefore we don't get the value out of it that we could get. Now, on this monomaniac thing, if my wife was here, she said to me on Skype this evening, she said, make sure to tell them. And she's a quiet person, wonderful on one-on-one. She said, the thing I find so helpful is to acknowledge God. Just drop God into a conversation just a little bit and see if people pick it up. If they're not interested, don't go there. But if they are, they may pick it up. Because, you see, I believe that God is more interested in other people than I am. So if I acknowledge him in little things, if they're ready, they will come and they'll begin to discuss them. And once they do that, of course, I have to uh, take it very seriously indeed. Peter says that we are to do this with gentleness and reverence. That I count as extremely important, and I suspect that those who invited me to speak tonight count it as important because it's the winsome apologist. Be real. Be honest. You see, one of the scary things is that when we start to engage with other people, We're terrified, all of us, without exception. There are only two sorts of people, by the way, those who are terrified and liars. Um, We're terrified that somebody's going to come up with a question that we can't answer. Listen, I work in a world of brilliant people, and I get asked questions every day of the week that I can't answer. What do I do? I say, I'm sorry, I don't even understand your question. (laughs) It was very funny. I was lecturing at Harvard, I think it was, And one of the students came across with one of these really sophisticated questions with several clauses and all the rest of it. And I paused and I said, you know, I haven't a notion what you're talking about. And it brought the house down. Everybody was on my side because I was honest. And here's another thing. Don't pretend to be what you're not. And don't pretend not to be what you are. There's a battle for that and we'll come to it in a little while. People are so impressed with honesty. If you're a young person beginning to witness, of course you don't know everything, but your friends don't know everything about atheism or agnosticism or whatever ism they're into. So ask them about their journey of faith. Don't always talk about yours. What about theirs? How did they get into atheism? And Larry Taunton has just published an article in the Atlantic last month, which is, you ought to read, about a number of college students that he's interviewed over the last couple of months who are heads of free-thinking and atheist societies. Every single one of them comes from a Christian background and has been put off by a negative experience of a Christian church. But they loved talking about their experience. Nobody had ever bothered to ask them before of their journey to atheism. And so it's so important that we're going to get to know people and really believe this stuff. We must do it on the level. The other person's journey is just as important as mine. And so we can be vulnerable. 
You can say, I don't know, but, you know, I'd like to think about that. And I'd like to see if there's any book about it. And people will respect you and say, great. And you come back and you say to them, look, I've read this and will you read it? And it gets a dialogue going. And you know what? You'll never forget the answer to that question. Because it's real. It's a question somebody's asked you. And then there'll come another question and another question. And instead of building it from the top down by reading all the books, the books are important, very important. Read as many as you can. I've read thousands of them. But if you start engaging bit by bit and coming to the questions as you will on day one that you can't answer, you find answers to those questions and they will stick with you and you get a bit more confidence and you go to another question, another question, another question. Does that make sense to you? This is easy, but I wasn't told it when I was younger and I wish I had been. I was trying to get my head around all kinds of very complex philosophy and I loved it. And I thought I had to know everything before I could start. But you don't. And I want to encourage you, and it would be a great achievement if many people who'd never really crossed that boundary before were to go out from this conference and begin to cross it. And be sensitive to where people are coming from. Because if a person doesn't see reason, reason isn't their problem. They may have had a very negative, painful experience of abusive Christianity. And so you need to be very sensitive. And if you find people are backing away, give them space. I'm so thankful my parents give me space. And didn't keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. Like so many of my contemporaries experienced. And the moment they got to university, their faith was gone. Because it never was their conviction anyway. Give people space. Often, I get excited. I'm an Irishman, you see. So I have to watch my temperament. And if I'm engaging on these topics, I will very often suddenly change the topic to see if the person's really interested in what I'm saying. And if they say, no, 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 let's continue, well, then that's fine. But then they know that you're giving them space. And you hope they'll give you space. It works both ways identically. We're not playing tricks with people. We're trying to be normal. We're trying to bring the normal canons of conversation into the articulation of our Christian faith and not to have a whole different set of rules and regulations and way of doing it. Now, one of the things you'll have noticed, I'm now going to speak for two minutes to people who are involved in public speaking. And you'll have noticed how I collected questions this morning. I collected only three. Normally, I collect a lot more. And if you want to see it in action, look at veritas.org. Because Q&A is very important, coming from 1 Peter. So how do you handle it publicly? Well, one method is you ask for questions, and a person stands up. Now, more often than not, that person has come to test you. They haven't listened to a word you've said very often. And when you've tried to answer their question, they'll say, I'm not satisfied, I have a second question. At that point, you lose half your audience instantly. And other people who are shyer and have real questions say, he's never going to get to my question. That is why I do what I do. I will not allow that to happen out of fairness to people who have the real questions. So I write the question down and I go on and on. And you discover the first three are very slow. And then it starts rolling so that hands are up all over the place. And you've got 20 or 30. And then I order them. I look at them and order them. So that I can present 
what I'm going to say as a mini lecture that brings all the questions together and teaches people how to think about these different questions. And therefore, I find that most people think in my lectures the Q&A is by far and away the high point to such an extent that now they say, don't give us a lecture, let's have a Q&A. And I do that frequently, as you'll see. If you look at Veritas, my recent uh, talks at Yale and Brown, they were Q&As from the very beginning. And it works very well. Q&A is vital. Engagement is utterly vital. So that's just a little tip. The other thing is that if I get personal questions, I tend to leave them to the end and give personal answers to them for reasons that should be absolutely obvious. Now, you see, I've quoted this verse in 1 Peter, but not in its context. Now let me give you the context. Who is there to harm you, verse 13 says, if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their fear, and do not be troubled. The context, ladies and gentlemen, is fear. As I go around the world, the two biggest issues I find among evangelical Christians and in my own heart are fear and shame. There is such pressure in our society to privatize faith so that I find many people of my age and below, they go to church, they read their Bible, they go to prayer meetings, they say their prayers, they lead devotions with their family, but years ago they stopped witnessing publicly because they've been silenced by their peers. Now, that's a very sad thing, but I understand it. Because I know the pressure in the world I work in, and you know the pressure in the world you work in. Notice Peter is talking in that context. Fear. And he is saying things that are geared to help us overcome fear. And Peter knew what fear was. He funked it on several notable occasions. When he stood near the fire at the time of the cross and the girl saw the light of the fire, who he was, you were with him. He said, no, I wasn't. He pretended to be what he wasn't. He pretended not to be what he was. And fear just grabbed his heart and he funked it. It's nice to learn from people that have made mistakes, isn't it? Very difficult to learn mathematics from someone who's always got it right and finds it easy. But meet somebody who's made mistakes and you find it much easier to learn, don't you? And Peter is a master teacher. It's no wonder he is the one who was given to write this letter. Because everybody knew that he was scared out of his wits on several occasions. It didn't leave him when he became a, a, a senior Christian. Because he got scared of some theologically clever people. And he funked the gospel and started not eating with Gentiles on one occasion. So Peter is a good man to teach us about fear. The causes of fear are so many. Feelings of inadequacy, I don't know enough, peer pressure, political cor correctness and all the rest of it. And this kind of attitude that I made, well I, I don't witness now in my company but when I'm the CEO I'll do it. Or I'm a junior doctor and I'll start witnessing when I'm a consultant and get a big position. I'm a junior professor and I'll keep quiet until I'm a full professor. Well my experience of that is Usually, it'll never happen. Now, we've got to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And the rule is very simple. Witness to your peers and below, first of all. Because, for example, I have many friends, and so have you, 
whose parents are not Christian and they're Christian. It is very difficult for a parent to believe that its child has found something that the parent has never found. Very difficult. And you've got to have sensitivity. And so I encourage you, don't try to immediately witness to the Nobel Prize winners of this world. It won't work. But each of us has a group of peers, and we treat them as peers. That's where to start, and people who are younger than we are. Now, often we get the opportunity, one hopes, that somebody above us in wherever we're working will notice that there's something special about us. I never forget one of the leading missionaries to Israel. I met him, a Jewish man from South Africa. And as I often do, I said, how did you come to faith? Well, he said, I was a senior doctor in a hospital. And it was a pretty irritable situation. People were losing their tempers with one another. But there was one nurse who was utterly different. And she worked with me quietly, never said a word, until one day I said to her, nurse, excuse me, I'd just like to ask you, what is it about you? What makes you different? She said two words, Jesus Christ. And the man couldn't get it out of his head. And on a rainy day in a thunderstorm when he wouldn't be seen, he went in and bought a Bible and through it he came to faith in God. And he's been a senior missionary for many years. You see, what is it about you? She was witnessing to someone above her in the hierarchy of normal work relationships. So be encouraged. Don't get deflated if you can't immediately walk into a job and on day two see the CEO converted. It's not likely to happen. It could happen, but it's not likely to happen. I remember my first job was in Toronto, and I'd never had a job before. I was 17, and I wondered what to do. So we had lunch hour, and we ate sandwiches. So I thought this might be fun. I, I said, you know, I have some very interesting lectures. Anybody up for listening to the lectures? So they said, what are they about? Well, they're questions about God and science and so on. And we had one of those old tape recorders. Most of you don't even know what a tape recorder is. You, you, you know the thing with the big reels? So I didn't know how to articulate my faith, but it was well articulated in these talks. So I would play 10 minutes, and then there would be a colossal discussion. They would be fighting one another. They'd be fighting me. I didn't have to say much, but it was amazing, the effect. And one day the vice president dropped in. I was terrified. And he listened and he said, I need to hear more of this stuff. You know, you can provide a forum which people can drop in on. Be inventive. Be imaginative. I probably don't have to say any of this because I get the impression that Xenos, you're very inventive. But fear is a big problem. And the more you step into the public light, the more you have to face with awful things. I mean, on Dawkins' website, there appeared this about me. Lennox ought to be taken out of the barn and a bullet put in the back of his head. Last week, my book was described as that odious book because it figures in a trial now in the United States because somebody took the risk of using it in a school. You're going to get this. And Peter insists that even so, we've got to be respectful so that when we're slandered, notice that, he anticipates an environment in which we get slandered. And it's very difficult to keep your cool in that kind of situation. And you wouldn't believe the number of letters I get. I would not name the names because I'd be ashamed to. 
of people that tell me I ought to go for the jugular, I ought to destroy them, I ought to kick them into the dirt, smash them, finish them off. What on earth is this? This is a Christian. Because I've noticed that atheists, when they lose their cool, lose their audience. You have to fight for it. But these are men and women made in the image of God, so I go the other way. I try to befriend them, always, even in public. You can watch a debate with me on Q&A in Sydney, Australia, which was fascinating, because I was put up against a leading humanist who wouldn't speak to me before I went really on, on the air. And we were poles apart. And as we were going on, I positively commented on something he said. Before the end of the program, we were the best of friends. And in the middle of the program, an astonishing thing happened. She suddenly said, of course, I've read The God Delusion. It's rubbish, isn't it? She referred to me. And she was the atheist. <laughs> Showing friendship is crucial. It's costly. You'll have to bite your tongue sometimes. But it is very important. Because our gospel is a gospel of a God who wants to befriend us. Now, argument, of course, is very important. But I want to make it clear, ladies and gentlemen, that I don't go into these debates to win them. I don't. Because if you go to win, you'll cut corners. I go to present a rational alternative to the atheism that their others are putting up. Let the people judge. I've got great confidence in people's ability to see through a pseudo-argument. So I believe my job is to put the opposite clearly, respectfully, and leave it to people to judge. And that frees me of that need to win. Of course, it's very funny because when I debated Christopher Hitchens in Scotland, they insisted on a vote. And Hitchens and the moderator, is a very famous broadcaster in Britain, came over to me and said, do you want a vote? I said, I'm not interested in voting. Oh, we must have a vote. So the vote went like this. At the start, the moderator said, who's on Hitchens' side? The hands went up. Who's on Lennox's side? Hands went up. Who doesn't know? And when it finished, they did the thing again. And what was utterly amazing to everybody, including me, a whole lot of the don't knows had moved over to my side. And the moderator said, shall we count again? And Hitchens was gracious enough to say, no, he's won. So when I went over to him, I shook his hand afterwards, and he said in a low voice, he said, I want a rematch in the United States. I said, okay, Christopher. So I did that in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was interviewed with a radio station. And they said to him, have you encountered Lennox before? Oh, yes, he said, I have. Did you have a vote? He said, not this time. We're not going to have a vote. <laughs> but that's nice, you know. That's human. That's real. I couldn't have disagreed more with Christopher Hitchens. But I liked the chat, and I got on well with him. And that is very important. I, my rule is, I want to be able, after the fiercest debate, to go out and be able to eat and drink with these people and talk to them. If you can't do that, don't start. Because you'll never get anywhere. So, these are one or two little uh, things that are important. But I want to spend the rest of my time tonight giving Peter's answer to fear. Because something happened in the man's life that enabled him ultimately, permanently, to get the courage to face the world with the gospel. And this is the title of our conference, Confidence in God and the Gospel. And it's that note I wish to finish on.
You see, the secret to overcoming fear isn't something I didn't read. You didn't notice it. But in 1 Peter 3, it says this. Don't be troubled, but sanctify in your heart Jesus as Lord. That is the key to all apologetics. It's not your knowledge, though that's important. It's your relationship and your commitment to Jesus Christ as your supreme value. Sanctify, make holy, separate as the chief value. So that's the key to it. Now this will be unpacked in Peter's story. The Gospels are marvelous works of literature. I'd love to have time to bring you on Luke's spectacular journey. You know, if you study literature, that the journey is one of the seven major themes of literature. But the Gospel of Luke, above all, describes the most remarkable journey that has ever happened because it doesn't start or end on earth. He starts with God in heaven sending his son into the world to be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus then travels through the world. And eventually he exits the world via the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. So the shape of Luke's gospel is like that. From glory to earth, along and out. You can remember that, can't you? And you can picture it. It is a powerful notion of a journey because it has a center point. The center point of time. And that is the event that we know as the transfiguration. Luke describes it like this. And it came to pass, when the days were well nigh come, that Jesus should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That happens in Luke 9, the middle of the gospel. That is, you're shifting all before that is Jesus coming into the world, into people's homes, into their lives, into their businesses. But now he's turning to leave the world. And he says to his disciples, are you coming too? And that's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? I'm on a journey out of this world. It came to pass when the days were well nigh come, when he should be received up. That's the ascension. And of course, this is the crux of our gospel. There is another world. This world is not the only world. And Jesus has come from that world. Stupendous claim. Goes against naturalism rather, doesn't it? And he's come into this world. And he's given evidence after evidence after evidence. And he turns to you and me and he said, are you coming with me as I leave the world? It's a big story. It's an exciting story. It's a special story. And at that turning point, at that turning point, there is a big problem of fear. Because the Lord says he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Peter says, it's absurd. That'll never happen to you, Lord. And then the Lord makes it more difficult and says, if a man saves his life, wants to save his life, he shall lose it. And that's what Peter thought. He thought he was losing his life. He'd invested three years of his life into Jesus. And now Jesus was saying, I'm going to die. The program's finished. Done. 
And Peter thought he was losing his life. And Christ said, if you're not prepared to lose it, you won't find it. To add to that, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the leaders, were against Jesus. And Peter was in a terrific turmoil. Who do you follow? I meet many people that feel like that. Who've been brought up in Christian homes. And the pressure comes on. How do I really know that there is another world? How do you know it's worth following Jesus? That's a very important question. And it's answered in the New Testament. So what happened was this, and I will keep it short because this is a major study that's very well while doing. But it's the answer to Peter's, is this really the right thing to be investing your life in if you're going to lose your life and all this complication? So after saying that to them about saving and losing life, he said to them, there are some of you standing here who shall not see death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There are three versions of that statement. They're all different because they have different nuances. In Mark, it goes like this. There are some of you standing here that shall not see death until they see the kingdom of God coming with power. And Luke says, until they see the kingdom of God. And this event has four descriptions in the New Testament. Three in the Gospels and one in 2 Peter. It is vastly important because of what it did. So let's take the first point. Who shall not see death until they see the kingdom of God. Ladies and gentlemen, with all the love I have in my heart, one nanosecond after death, you will need no convincing that the kingdom of God is real. One nanosecond after death. But the big deal is to get convinced of that before death. Are you convinced of it? There will be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death until they see. That is, they are going to experience something that will convince them of the reality of that other world before they enter it in the normal way of death. And after six days, he took them up to a high mountain. Do you remember that story? I don't know whether it was a daytime or at nighttime, but his face began to shine as the sun, and his garments became brilliant like the light, and they discovered that up that mountain, it was a launch platform, so to speak, into another world where Jesus, despised down here, was the source of all the illumination and energy of that world. You discovered that yet? Paul, oh, that's a big discovery. Down in this world, they were treating him as the carpenter, and how does he know all this, and all this kind of stuff. Up there, the whole thing became reversed. And just as the sun in our sky is the source of light and energy and power and life, so he is the S-U-N of that world. Do you believe that? The one who walked the streets of Galilee? It was an amazing situation. And it was meant to be amazing. It frightened them to death, of course. They'd never seen anything remotely like it. It says he was transfigured before them. He was metamorphosed is the Greek word. 
Something happened. Now, we watch metamorphosis, and it's spectacular in the animal world. But to see Jesus, who presumably was a humble carpenter, to suddenly see something happen where he became utterly radiant as the center of that other world, that was overwhelming. And it began to blow the circuits of their minds and their emotions as they watched it. You shall see the kingdom of God come with power. And Mark makes the comment, a very great comment actually. He says, you know, the garments of Jesus became so bright that no laundry on earth has the power to whiten them. That's the literal translation. What is power, ladies and gentlemen? Is it the power to explode a bomb? Is it the power to exercise great political authority or land people of the burden? God's idea of power is look at the garments of Jesus. There's no laundry on earth can produce that whiteness. It's unearthly. And of course, garments are symbols of character. Look at his character, says the heavenly voice. And we need to do that, ladies and gentlemen. The character of Jesus is infinitely compelling and attractive. Do you know what Peter says when he gives his testimony? I was called not to his glory and virtue, but I was called by it. I couldn't resist it. His character was so compelling. And it was compelling because Jesus, though a man, was never a mere man. He came from above. He was going back there. And they were beginning to see something of the relationship between the two. Power? Oh, but there's more to it than that. Suddenly, two figures appeared. And I presume Jesus introduced them to Peter because he wouldn't have known what they were like. Moses and Elijah. Wow. Down on earth, the people who came to follow Moses and Elijah rejected Jesus. They had never introduced Peter to Moses and Elijah, but Jesus did. You think of the power, ladies and gentlemen. Forgive me, but I am a mathematician. Moses and Elijah lived centuries apart. Jesus holds them now contemporary. Isn't that spectacular? You mean he's got the power to do that? To bring them into the same moment of time so that they're contemporary. What an exciting vision that is. You see, what this is is a vision of something to come. The small scale pointing towards the big scale. It takes some power to do that. That's way beyond anything that we can conceive. Oh, that's real power. And it raises all kinds of questions about this universe. Where were Moses and Elijah up to this point? And where did they disappear to? And so on. I'm excited about the world to come. You can see that, can't you? Because it's more real, as C.S. Lewis would say, than this world. And Peter and co. were so overwhelmed with this that they fell asleep. I wouldn't laugh if I was you. Do you blame them? I think we would have been torn apart. We couldn't face it either. And Peter got up and he wondered what to do. He said, Lord, shall we make a few tents? One for Moses, one for you, and one for Elijah. The man hadn't been listening. Because the discussion that Luke tells us about is that they were discussing something on that mountain. Crucial something. They were discussing, says Luke, the Lord's departure that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. The word for departure is exodus. Does that remind you of anything? 
Well, Moses had led a colossal exodus, hadn't he? So he was expert number one on the topic of exodus. Elijah had gone straight up to heaven without dying, so he had a remarkable exodus. But they weren't discussing that. They were discussing the exodus that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. And Peter says, shall we all stay? He'd missed the point, hadn't he? Let's make tents to stay here. Oh, you couldn't stay. Because it was still just a vision, ladies and gentlemen. To make that vision real, he had to go down the mountain. He had to go to a cross. He had to rise and ascend to heaven to make it real. If they'd stayed on the mountain, none of us would be here today. Ah, but there's something else, and it's lovely. When they got down the mountain, the three Gospels report a tragic scene of a lad and his father, and the lad had lost control over his emotions and his behavior and fell into the water and the fire. He was distorted, and the man had brought him to the disciples. And he came in desperation to the Lord when he came down the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And he said, I brought him, look at my son. Your disciples didn't have the power to. And unfortunately in English, you miss this completely. It talks about, as I said, the kingdom of God coming in power. Your disciples didn't have the power to. He's still discussing power. They didn't have the power to, said Jesus. Bring him to me. All things are within the power, that's the literal reading, of him who believes. Oh, but it's poignant, ladies and gentlemen. The distraught father came and said, Lord, look at my son. On top of the mountain, God said, look at mine. Have you ever felt it? Oh, Lord, look at my son. Look at my mom. Look at my dad. Look at my sister. Look at my granny. Look at my friends. Oh, Lord, have mercy on them. Look at them. Look at mine. The difference is spectacular, isn't it? Worlds away. This is my son. And the major message from the top of the mountain was this. Listen to him. That's the major message for tonight. Listen to him. For whatever else you do, listen to him. This is the governor of the worlds, the creator of the atom. And he wants you to listen to him. And he's given you ears to listen and a brain to understand. And he's revealed in this part of scripture the sheer wonder of who he is. Listen to him. But he's prepared to come down to your mum and your son and your daughter. Bring him to me. And he healed the lad. There were many others he didn't heal, but it was again showing what would one day happen on the huge scale. And so, says Peter, in summing this whole thing up, he says, you know, we did not follow cunningly devised Myths, and he uses the technical word for myth. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the two. When we made known to you the power, he's picking up Mark. And the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is this transfiguration? It's a thought model to help us gear into 
the coming of Christ. You say, do you believe that as a mathematician? Of course I believe it. It is the arrow to which all history is pointing. This world cannot kick its creator out and have heard the last of it. How could it have? And Jesus will come. We didn't follow cunningly devised myths. And you know, Peter adds a little bit. He's getting old, Peter. He probably was a good bit older than me. And he, at this time, is saying, you know, there's one thing I've been preaching again and again and again and again, and I want you to remember it long after I've gone. I consider it right, so long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has been made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my exodus, literally, you may be able to call it to mind. So this is Peter's last sermon to the world. And it's the one thing he kept hammering on. What is it? The eternal world is real. Live for it. That's the message. It's not a myth. How do you know, Peter? I was there in the mountain. I heard the voice. Oh, but you say, come on. Come on, let's get a few applied psychologists working on it. That was a vision. Distortion of your own mind, was it not? Oh, no. But what I want you to notice is that Peter is very aware of that kind of thing. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so, he says, now here's a very interesting statement. We have, the translations vary, so let me give you a few alternatives. We have the prophetic word made more sure. But the word made isn't there. We have the more sure prophetic word. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, I'm an Irishman. I think it could mean both. The experience on the mountain made the prophetic word, the word of Scripture, more sure for the disciples. But in a sense, the prophetic word, which is expanded over centuries, is more certain than an experience at the top of a mountain that only three people had. So have it both ways. But now this is very interesting, isn't it? You weren't on the mountain of transfiguration. I wish I had been, but I wasn't. So what about me? I don't have that advantage. Oh, but half a minute. Peter knows that. This is what he said. We have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's a bit difficult. Let me translate it for you. No prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. What does that mean? It means that prophecy doesn't come about by individual analysis, however clever the analyst is. It's not a result of a clever think tank picking up trends in world politics and philosophy. No. 
It is thoroughly supernatural. It is men moved by God, by the Holy Spirit speaking from God. What is all this saying, ladies and gentlemen? It's saying that the Word of God is meant to do for you and me what the Transfiguration did for Peter. And that is make eternity real. You do well that you take heed to it. Because, you see, it is a supernatural phenomenon. It's God speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, I need to challenge myself and you. If you're going to win this world, you're going to need you young people to spend time in the Word of God. That's the first thing that will go. You'll be so busy in Christian work, you'll be studying the Bible to get stuff for other people. But that isn't the main point of studying the Word of God. The main point is to get to know God. Wonderful to prepare things for other people. But it is a sure way to spiritual bankruptcy. If you spend your whole time getting things for others and you're not waiting on God for him to speak to you. These are very serious things. I'm so glad that I met people in my teens. And I haven't been perfect by any means. Haven't spent nearly enough time. But you're going to have to spend serious time. Five minutes a day before you jump into bed is not going to change either you or the world. It shows you don't believe the stuff, actually. I used to be worried as a student of people that said to me, I believe the Bible's inspired. And I said, you believe Ezekiel's inspired? Oh, yes. What does it say? No notion. I wouldn't laugh at that if I was you. Because there are loads of the Bible I don't know enough about. When are we going to get serious? Such potential in this room. But some of you tonight are going to have to make up your minds that I'm going to spend time at this. I'm going to tell you a little story. And with that, I'm going to close. One of my best friends at Cambridge, a bit younger than me, we became such close friends that we agreed that whoever died first, the other would take his funeral service. He, of course, thought I would die first. But he died first, at the age of 59. He was a leading evangelist. He led thousands of students to Christ. Had a massive influence in the whole of Europe. And I went to visit him in the hospital. I said, Nigel, what will I say to them? What will I say to them? Without hesitation, he said this. He said, John, tears in his eyes. Tell them to do what we did when we were young men. Tell them to get into the word of God and wait on God until they see the face of God. And then in a quiet voice, he said, and then they will have something to say. That was his last message to the world. And so I'm sharing it with you. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Paul's apologia, with which he started, was all about his seeing a light.
Seeing the glory of God. Seeing the reality of it. And throughout scripture. The men and women who made their mark from God. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. The same God appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road. And he appeared to Peter, James and John on the top of a mountain. What a thrilling thing that is. Because you know what it's telling us? It's telling us that if we take this word seriously. The Lord himself will begin to speak to us. And once that's happened it changes everything. You get confidence. And you're able to take on more and more. Because you know it's just not a set of arguments and a set of theoretical constructs. But you have in that spiritual sense. Seen the Lord and heard his voice through his word. But it won't happen if you don't give it time. If you're not serious, God won't be serious. But if you are serious, he will be. God bless you, ladies and gentlemen. Go for it. Good night. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.